0: This episode of AHLA Speaking of Health Law is brought to you by AHLA members and donors like you. For more information, visit
1: AmericanHealthLaw.org. Hi,
0: everyone. My name is Jacob Mann, and I am a research specialist in the program on regulation, therapeutics, and law at Harvard Medical School and Brigham and Women's Hospital. And I'd like to introduce my co-presenter. Christina Yen. Christina, if you could share a bit more about yourself.
1: Hey, Jake. Thank you so much for that. My name is Christina Yen. I'm an infectious diseases specialist as a physician. And when I'm not seeing patients, I serve as the medical director for antimicrobial stewardship at Maine Medical Center in Portland, Maine.
0: Great. Christina and I today are going to be talking about Medicare's Hospital Acquired Conditions Reduction Program, or HACERP for short. Sort of a weird acronym, but that's just how it is. I had the opportunity to publish an article about the program recently in AHLA's Journal of Health and Life Sciences Law. I would encourage you to take a look at the article for a bit more of an in-depth analysis. The program was passed as part of the Patient Protection Affordable Care Act. and. The way the program works is it withholds 1% of Medicare funds from those applicable hospitals that perform in the bottom quartile of hospitals on metrics of hospital-acquired conditions. And the basic idea is Medicare funds should not be used to pay for the treatment of conditions that were acquired in the hospital setting hospital-acquired conditions or hacks are pretty common still. As of 2017, they occurred for every nine out of 100 discharges, and they actually cost U.S. hospitals at least $28.4 billion annually. And the program since its inception has been operating consistently every year, with the exception of during the pandemic. When the pandemic hit, which Christine and I will be diving more into. The program was put on pause. It would have been using pandemic-era data, which may have skewed results in terms of how much hospital-acquired conditions there were. But the program's back in full swing, and we we both think that it's important for healthcare lawyers to be aware of the program and how it works. Before we dive into the mechanics, I'd like Christine to share a bit more about you know what she sees as infectious disease specialist. You know, what impact do acts have on hospitals' ability to care for patients? And particularly what impact do healthcare associated infections, as we'll discuss, have? And what do you think lawyers should generally be aware of?
1: Now, I'd love to talk a little bit more about this. You know, especially as an infectious diseases physician, um, I'm regularly in contact with physicians who are caring for patients who acquire hospital um, infections, or sometimes we will abbreviate it as HAIs. And I might use that abbreviation from time to time. And we usually think about these HAIs in two broad categories. So first, the pathogen itself. So for example. Um, like the bacterium clostridioides difficile, otherwise known as C. diff, because that's a mouthful. Or the second is the type of the infection that a patient might get, like a ventilator-associated pneumonia. You alluded to this already, but HAIs are unfortunately pretty common. So, you know, In addition to the numbers you provided, the CDC estimates that at any given time, about one in 31 hospitalized patients will have at least one HAI. And many of them are in our intensive care units, you know, where our sickest patients stay. Those numbers can get as high as 19.5% of patients. So unsurprisingly, we really think about hospital acquired conditions like infections as problems patients get, you know, about 48 hours after being hospitalized. And at least to me, infections are always the easiest example, um, you know, because it's something that, you know, a person doesn't encounter at home or at work in their everyday lives. Um, That said, you know, the risk of getting a hospital acquired um, infection or condition can usually be reduced substantially when hospitals prioritize reducing these conditions or putting programs in place that prevent them. For example, um, infection prevention programs, which are pretty prevalent, um, advocate for simple but very necessary things like regular hand-washing among staff, regular cleaning of uh, medical equipment. And so, you know, I think not just lawyers, but everybody should know that all hospital-acquired conditions impact patients, not just when they're in the hospital, but long after they leave it. I know it's really sad to hear that, but it is true. You know, when a person's hospitalized, treating a newly acquired hospital-based condition, like a fall, a blood clot, an infection, that takes time away, attention and care away from the original reason why the patient came into the hospital in the first place. And these conditions then prolong the time that folks stay in the hospital and of course the longer you stay in the hospital that means your likelihood of getting another hospital acquired condition only increases and with a longer stay and more problems to fix folks often leave our hospitals more frail more ill than when they came in and what that means is once they leave they're more likely to need hospital level care again and sooner than somebody else that in turn, then impacts hospitals' abilities to ensure that enough resources like beds, surgical suites, or just necessary personnel like our nursing staff can be allocated to patients who need it. Like, for example, there was like a 2012 CMS, so Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services study that estimated the risk of readmission in the 30-day period after discharge to be 20 to 33% higher for folks who had a hospital-acquired condition like an infection so this type of program is a positive step I think towards increasing patient safety and you know more hospital accountability and actually to that effect I'd love to know more about how this program works
0: Thanks Christina so like I explained in the article the first step in really understanding the program is knowing what hospitals are actually, subject to the potential withholding of Medicare funds. Hacker applies to any hospital that's a when known what is known as a subsection D hospital under the Social Security Act and a subsection D hospital is actually a pretty broad categorization. It's notable that subsection D hospitals are defined as hospitals other than, Psychiatric hospitals, rehab hospitals, children's hospitals, hospitals with an average inpatient length of stay of greater than 25 days, and then also cancer treatment research hospitals. I should note here that the provisions regarding cancer hospitals, whether it be for research or treatment, are pretty specific, and those require careful review. But again, it is notable that subsection D is meant to be a broad, more encompassing category and only excludes particular hospitals. And then in determining how hospitals perform in terms of hospital acquired conditions, CMS uses data from the calendar year two years ago. So for example, for the current fiscal year 2024, CMS is using calendar year 2022 data, which makes sense. You know, that is post, arguably post-pandemic data. So it is not going to potentially see the same skewed metrics that we may have seen otherwise during the pandemic. And then every hospital that is subject to the program is going to receive a total hack score. And the hack score is based actually on six measures. The first measure accounts for 15% of the total score. It's the what's known as the Patient Safety and Adverse Events Composite, or the CMS PSI 90. This score is based on reported rates of conditions like accidental punctures or lacerations, falls resulting in hip fractures, and postoperative complications, among others. One other reason I'm very excited to have Christina as my co-presenter today is because the last five measures making up 85% of the score are healthcare-associated infections measures. So, Christina, I'd like to just turn back over to you now to you know, talk more about the measures that fall under that healthcare-associated infections category.
1: For sure. So, as you pointed out in the hack score, there's a huge schm- component of it that is HAIs, these healthcare-associated infections. And so generally, throughout the year, hospitals are actually submitting um, information on healthcare-associated infections to the CDC's um, National Healthcare Safety Network, or NHSN. And so the HAIs that make up this hack score are calculated from this data submitted um, regarding hospital rates of five major things really. So the first is central line associated bloodstream infections. So infections to the blood caused by, you know, intravenous needles or other types of like tubing. Second is catheter associated urinary tract infections. That one's a little more self-explanatory. Three surgical site infections, primarily for abdominal hysterectomy and colon procedures. Fourth is Methicillin-resistant staph aureus infections, but that's a lot, so we usually all call it MRSA or MRSA infections. And then lastly, C. diff infections. And you know, to me, um, not only do I see patients very frequently with these infections, but also in my other, um, the other hat I wear antimicrobial stewardship. Um, I am personally really happy to see HAIs sort of take center stage in the hack score. Um, especially these five, because these are also on the CDC's, like, NHSN priority list. Um, And they are what we see every day pretty commonly in the hospital as well when we take care of patients. So to me, that makes the hack score practical and focused on where we can really make the greatest impact. Um, I say that, but I also realize a lot of folks um, may not know what I mean by, like, how Prevalent it is, so I want to kind of give a sense for how big this problem might be and why it does make sense for the Hack Score to focus on them. So I'll I'll give like two examples. So the first one is in 2017, there was an estimated 223,900 cases of C diff in hospitalized patients and 12,800 deaths in the United States that were C diff related. And this number has not changed much as of 2023 from what we know. And to contextualize these big numbers, um, that first number, that two hundred twenty-three thousand, that's about two days worth of Coachella attendees getting C diff every year. So if you can just imagine, you know, those photos that you've seen of Coachella, that's how many people are being harmed by C diff every year. And a second example is you know, between 15 to 25% of our hospitalized patients receive urinary catheters during their hospital stay. Now these catheters are like temporary. They kind of look like plastic tubing that's inserted through their urethra into the bladder. They are helpful. They drain urine when a a person, a patient can't void themselves, but the trouble of catheter associated UTIs comes in when those catheters are left in place for way too long. And These catheter-associated UTIs make up 75% of all the UTIs acquired in a hospital. So let's say, you know, if you had a family member who was a patient who did need a urinary catheter to help them avoid after like a big surgery, but that catheter wasn't regularly reviewed for necessity or removed in a timely manner like they would honestly be more likely to get a catheter associated urinary tract infection than I am to successfully call heads or tails on a coin flip. And I would like to say that that's not great, right?
0: No. I mean, I, I think it also goes to the idea of the program being that why are Medicare funds being used to treat conditions at work should never have been Mm -hmm. suffered or acquired by the patient. And you know, failing to remove a catheter in a timely manner is, I think, a pretty clear example of the sorts of conditions that we're seeking to avoid here.
1: Totally agree. So simple, so preventable. You know, this is why we need to make them a priority like it is in the Hack score. And I think lastly, um, before I uh, turn it back to you, because I'm kind of curious how these scores actually get calculated, but... Um, I, I always like to mention that, you know, preventing hospital acquired conditions is everyone's responsibility, right? All hospitals have two or three programs that promote practices and work daily to reduce hospital acquired um, infections or conditions, such as, you know, the hospital's quality division, infection prevention, hospital epidemiology, or antimicrobial stewardship, which I do. Um, These programs are usually just promoting low cost but highly effective hospital wide efforts that I like to think are important to making these completely preventable um, conditions minimal or as non-existent as possible. But we really can't make these programs or efforts happen without the support of hospital leadership, nurses, technicians, you know, literally everyone who makes care happen for patients.
0: Yeah. And Christina, I should also add this the first time I've learned that you run your hospital's antibiotic stewardship program, which I find (laughs) awesome because much of my work focuses on antibiotics and antimicrobial stewardship. So that's, that's just exciting to hear.
1: We're going to have to talk even more than usual. This is later though. That's going to be great. I love that.
0: Yeah. We'll have to reconnect over that. Mm -hmm. And Yeah, thank you again as well for, you know, really diving into the infections you see as infectious disease specialists, how you think PAC is focused pretty heavily on those sorts of infections. And I'm going to take a moment now to talk about, you know, how those scores are calculated. So every hospital is going to get a confidential hospital-specific report that will contain their score. And these reports are given to hospitals to review, whether it be the metrics, the calculations. And then the way it works is that hospitals in the lowest performing 25% of subsection D hospitals lose 1% of Medicare reimbursement funds. I should add a little bit of a. Attorneys beware! Note here to calculate the distribution of hospital scores, Hacker uses what's called a Winter I.C. score calculation. It CMS has an infographic that explains the scoring methodology, and it's pretty straightforward. It's I'd encourage you to take a look. I kept the discussion of the actual methodology just to a footnote in the article itself, and we won't be getting into it too much here. Once a uh, hospital's received, it's a hospital-specific report, it's important to note it only has 30 days to review the data. There is a very limited window for review. And in that time, it needs to submit any questions and request any corrections. And this period happens pretty early on in the hacker process. For example, the review period for fiscal year 2024 started back in July of this year. I should note as well that review is very limited. There's no review for the criteria describing applicable hospitals, the applicable period, act specification, or the provision of reports. So it's a more kind of if you're going to contest something, it would need to be you know the actual calculations, the data, and focusing on that. Not so much whether your hospital client is subject to the program. And then once the review is completed by the hospitals, that data is actually made public. And that data, whether or not it should be made public, was actually a big subject of debate during the pandemic when CMS was considering what to do with the program to what extent a pause should be put into place. Christian, I just I'm curious. I mean, what do you think it's valuable that this data be made available to the public? Is it something patients are actually paying attention to or should be paying attention to?
1: Mm, this is a good question, I think, because it's complicated. Personally, I think there's a role here in making this information publicly available in many for many reasons. But I think one is just the simple fact that we need metrics like the hacked for to get a sense of the american landscape right now when it comes to where are we at with hospital acquired conditions and i hope that by getting more sort of quantitative data out there or just you know metrics by which we can understand the situation nationally or regionally or by institution it can help hospitals understand where they can make improvements and where they can really enhance the quality and safety of their care. I mean, hospitals those institutions and the people inside them, like myself, we don't want to cause harm to patients, but it's really hard without a concrete score like this, to get a sense for how big the problem is in our own hospital, the severity, and sometimes like the urgency. Um, so, I think there is some value in seeing this and kind of getting a sense for where everyone is at, because we can then all begin to appropriately invest or pivot our resources and focus our efforts on these pretty serious conditions. And as you've been kind of alluding to throughout our conversation, um, I think that's pretty crucial because we're all trying to move forward after the worst of the COVID pandemic. Um, We have some studies that tell us that most HAI prevalence and incidents increased in that time nationwide. So we've got to find some ways to continue making progress towards lowering these rates.
0: And so the program was put on pause during COVID. There was no, you know, 1% penalties assessed. There was initially a lot of debate around to what extent the program should be paused. It's CMS, it was initially going to keep all hack data confidential. Patient advocacy groups, for example, like the leapfrog group came out strongly against that. In the end, that resulted in CMS publishing much of the data but withholding the one percent with or withholding the one percent, you know, deduction from mm. hospitals in the lowest performing quartile. Mm. There were possible discussions as well as to what was going to happen with the program post-COVID. Some studies have found it may actually not incentivize hospitals to perform better on controlling hacks. And that, for example, it's more or less, whereas it's supposed to operate ideally as an incentivization program, it was acting more as a penalty. And especially for those hospitals that need the funds the most. So there's been some ongoing discussion there, but really the program is back in full swing. I don't see it going anywhere anytime soon. And especially Christina, like you mentioned with, rates of hosp- healthcare associated infections going up during COVID and perhaps still seeing a rise there. I'd have to you know, look more at the data and things to see, but I'd like, you know, Christina, if you don't mind, what do you think could potentially be improved as to the program? I mean, if it is potentially penalizing the hospitals, rather than incentivizing performance, what do you think an ideal, you know, post COVID hack control program would look like?
1: Oh man, Jake, like, are we talking, uh, you know, as ambitious as possible or small steps? No, I I mean, I think this is a fair question, right? Um, Because of exactly what you said, which is, The intention of the program was well intentioned. We want to incentivize, we want people, we want hospitals and patients to know that they're getting safe, quality care, that their focus is on making sure that healthcare does not harm a patient when they are being cared for. And unfortunately, for many of our most, um, you know, our hospitals who are seeing many patients who are, in positions or locations geographically or otherwise um, in great need, that has sometimes not been the um, the reality of it. So because the reality has not consistently matched with the goals um, in every condition, but no program is perfect, I would personally love to see post-COVID um, as it relates to the hack program maybe more um, consistent or it t- like more opportunities to engage with boots on the ground. Those who do the daily work of preventing and mitigating hospital acquired conditions like infections so that both the program and those who do this, like our infection prevention nurses and specialists, like our quality you know, um, like chiefs and physicians like me, Everybody gets a sense of the challenges faced on the ground, and also in turn, faced by the program. Um, You know, I think that goes a long way to not only feel engaged, but included and feel that we're value added to this work. and I think many of us in the field that I'm in are still very much recovering after the COVID-19 response efforts from the last three years. I'm sure you are. I think everybody, we're we're still putting the pieces back together. So knowing something like Hacker Pats has more commonalities than differences with those of us who have, you know, been on the, you know, been seeing the patients day in and day out and seeing the rise in these hospital-acquired conditions in our own work, I think also goes a long way for workforce retention and creating more sustainable efforts to prevent these hospital-acquired conditions. So it does then feel less punitive and more collaborative, more um, incentivizing. So I'd like to think that um, that would be um, not only... I think something feasible, something I would personally like to see um, as a way we move forward after the pandemic, because I do believe that we are going to take the lessons, both good and bad, from what we've learned in these past few years and, you know, make them work for us to reduce these hospital acquired conditions. It's just, you know, where we will go and how that will happen. I'm really curious to see.
0: I certainly am as well. Christina, I think that brings us to the end of our time. I'd really, again, like to thank you for joining me and sharing your real on the ground expertise and knowledge.
1: Jake, it was an absolute pleasure. Always great chatting with you. And I learned a lot today too. I mean, I had no idea how to calculate a hack score, and now I do. So, um, but all joking aside, no, it was, I learned a lot too as a physician. It has been really edifying. So thank you for having me.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to AHLA Speaking of Health Law wherever you get your podcasts. To learn
1: more about AHLA and the educational resources available to the health law community, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org.